Chapter Ten of King and Parliament by George Henry Wakeling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Anne, seventeen o two to seventeen fourteen. Anne, the younger daughter of James the Second, by his first marriage became queen on William's death by the express terms of the Revolution Settlement she was likely to be popular for she was a Stuart and yet a sincere member of the anglican church the tories would see in her a representative of the family whose misdeeds they were so anxious to forgive the whigs would approve of a queen succeeding by laws framed against the enemies of england's liberties she was a good woman without much will of her own thus it was easy to influence her and it was necessary for those who wished to secure power to do so for she retained a good deal of the importance in politics which had belonged to her predecessors she sat in the council and the ministers were her nominees or the nominees of those who worked upon her feelings the constitution was as we have seen changing a time was coming when the sovereign would be obliged to choose ministers trusted by the commons and the country the existence of parties had forced william to do so this was becoming even more necessary in anne's reign indeed her greatest change of ministers in seventeen ten was the result of a national and party agitation which carried the queen along with it this presents a great contrast to the early days of the period when the stuart kings had endeavoured to maintain ministers in opposition to the movement of the time the extension of this system was destined in the end to solve the problem of english government but meanwhile the fact remains that anne was sufficiently her own mistress to be unwilling to make changes except under pressure thus her easily led nature became a most important political matter her personal influence was perhaps heightened by the fact that her husband prince george of denmark was a man of no political weight there was nothing in him according to charles the second who professed to have tried him drunk and tried him sober the reign is much less puzzling than that which preceded it three main problems the european question the position of parliament in the state and the permanence of the revolution settlement seem to come to a clear issue an issue whose importance is none the less on account of its clearness the position of france on the continent remained to be determined it was a problem which had occupied the minds of statesmen since the end of the thirty years war in sixteen forty eight louis the fourteenth had first tried to seize the netherlands and been checked by the triple alliance and the peace of aix-la-chapelle he had next tried to punish the dutch but had been forced to desist at the peace of nijmegen his ambition still unsatisfied by his gains had then been confronted by a european coalition which finally bound him by the peace of ryswick now was to come the war of the spanish succession which was to break his proud spirit and rescue the continent from the spectre of french domination which had haunted the imagination of europe for fifty years this foreign war carried the second problem with it whigs and tories could not fight out their party struggle upon the question of jacobitism 
for the pretender never wavered in his allegiance to rome and most tory statesmen knew that a roman catholic king was out of the question even if a son of james the second might otherwise have been desirable but the whig war and the whigs who carried it on the dissenters who were still the friends of the whigs the moneyed men who supplied the whig exchequer these were always open to the tory attack the reign of anne thus became a period of keen party struggle complicated at every step by the military question on the continent a struggle carried on by any and every means at the termination of which the great constitutional change had been brought far on its way for with a weak woman on the throne it became only a battle of ins and outs of those who held power and those who wished to supplant them those who won must do so by having parliament on their side a pale reflection of such a struggle is witnessed now in our everyday political life the difference is that now the whole nation with its millions of voters and its hourly newspapers watches and finally decides the struggle at the polls whereas in those days though pamphlets issued rapidly from whig pens and tory pens it took as many days as it now takes hours for the real truth concerning the parliamentary debates to penetrate to the ears even of the cultivated classes the party that was out of power had to raise a cry sufficient to influence those few who had votes it had also to secure the queen's ear by means of those who were about her yet after the strides made in the direction of cabinet government footnote this means that the ministers are chosen entirely from the leaders of the party which has a majority in parliament and resign directly they lose that majority End footnote. between the revolution and the accession of george i the bringing of the will of the nation to bear on these matters was only a question of time the control of government had passed forever from the hands of the personal monarch it was bound eventually to pass to the majority of the nation one more question which had agitated england for a long time was also to come up for solution the jacobites hoped that though anne might be permitted to reign no german prince would ever succeed to the throne of the stuart house the hanoverian succession was the law of the land but whether it would be converted into a fact was in grave doubt during the last few years of anne's life between a foreigner and a roman catholic the choice was not an easy one with these three points before us the european crisis the party struggle and the succession dilemma the reign may be divided into three periods in the first seventeen o two to seventeen o eight the european question was foremost the national enthusiasm set the war going and the genius of marlborough made it successful the queen was completely under the influence of the wife of her great commander the whigs secured a majority in parliament and the ministers were chosen from among them louis was beaten on all sides and sued for peace which was at first refused in the second period seventeen o eight to seventeen ten the strife of parties at home is all-important wearied by the long war the nation refused to support marlborough as they had refused to support william the danger seemed over the influence of the duchess was undermined and queen anne ceased to take pleasure in the society of a brawling woman in a wide house 
a Tory reaction occurred. Churchmen raised their voices against toleration, and the foolish prosecution of one of them gave away the dignity of the government, who, their popularity being already gone, could not long hope to retain office. The struggle ended in a victory for the Tories, and thus incidentally for the principle of party government. A Tory ministry was soon appointed, and in the third period, 1710 to 1714, the revolution settlement trembled in the balance. Peace was made with France, a peace perhaps necessary, perhaps just, yet in terms far less glorious than our victorious armies were considered to have earned. The Tory ministers plotted for a Tory triumph, perhaps for a Stuart restoration. The death of Anne, however, found this ministry divided by a quarrel between its leaders, and the Whigs were able to obtain sufficient influence in the council to secure the succession of George I. The War of the Spanish Succession, 1702-1713, was waged mainly in three separate quarters. First, on the eastern side of France, in the Netherlands, along the Rhine and the borders of Bavaria and Austria. Here Marlborough and his Dutch allies had to succor the emperor and to drive Louis from the Netherlands, which they had to regain foot by foot. Secondly, in Italy, where Eugène, a prince of the house of Savoy, faced the French armies sent into the Milanese duchy and endeavoured to prevent them from reaching Austria by the Tyrolese passes. Thirdly, in Spain itself, where the English, with their Spanish and Portuguese allies, endeavoured to drive Philip V from his newly acquired throne and to place the Archduke Charles, the candidate of the allies, in his place. This was the ostensible purpose for which the war was being waged, though it turned into a struggle to keep France from attacking the Empire and the Netherlands, as well as from obtaining a commanding position in North Italy, the Spanish campaigns always remained of secondary importance. As William had died when war was popular, there was no delay in taking up the struggle. Marlborough took command of the Allies in the Netherlands, and war was formally declared in May 1702. Anne was still as much as ever under the influence of this great man and his wife. The Queen allowed her favourite to call her Mrs. Morley, and in the familiar intercourse between the friends, the Duchess was Mrs. Freeman. The ministry comprised both Whigs and Tories, Marlborough and Godolphin, to whom the former was related by marriage, being the leading spirits. Soon, however, it became clear that the Tories loved neither the war nor those who were conducting it, and they gradually were eliminated from the administration. Nottingham left office in 1704, and the Whigs, Sunderland, and Somers soon appeared in the ministry. The elections in 1705 were in favour of the Whigs, and the gradual stiffening of the Whig element in the government reflected their gains in Parliament. Thus, for the first period of the reign, the war policy went smoothly enough at home. It will be well, therefore, to describe the main features of the military struggle. The first necessity for Marlborough was to check the French advance toward the Dutch frontier, for Louis had already possession of most of the Spanish Netherlands. In 1702, the English general was occupied with the siege of several fortresses in order to construct the desired barrier. Liege was captured, 
and in 1703 he took Bunn, thus stretching his line considerably toward the Middle Rhine. Louis' main object, however, was not to expend strength on this frontier where English and Dutch stood firm. Between Eugene in Italy and Marlborough in Flanders lay a great tract of country in which Louis' allies, the Bavarians, were for the moment dominant. It was therefore the object of the French to send forces through this great gap and attack the emperor in his hereditary dominion of Austria. He was the weakest member of the coalition, and if Louis could seize Vienna as he had seized Strasbourg, he could dictate terms to one at least of the allies. Prince Eugène won the Battle of Cremona in 1702 and prevented the French who held Milan from pouring troops through the Tyrol to Austria but the French attack was soon after made in the centre, where Marshal Tallard made a dash for the valley of the Upper Danube in 1704. The King of France, however, had to deal with a man whose ordinary calm common sense flashed into genius when a campaign or battle was to be worked out or fought. Marlborough saw through the plan and determined to defeat it. He executed a rapid movement toward the Upper Danube valley, and joined Prince Eugène near Ulm. Together they advanced to attack the enemy, and at Blenheim, a little village on the left bank of the Danube, a crushing defeat was inflicted upon the French and Bavarians. France never recovered the blow during the war. The whole electorate of Bavaria fell into the hands of the Allies. The empire was saved. In 1705, the chief interest of the fighting lies in Spain the Earl of Peterborough captured and held Barcelona, and the entire district of Catalonia declared for Charles. Meanwhile, in 1704, the English fleet, which had already seized a great squadron of Spanish treasure ships in Vigo Bay, took Gibraltar under the leadership of Sir John Rook and Sir Cloudsley Shovel. In 1706, the Allies triumphed on all three theatres of war. Marlborough broke into the French lines and crushed their armies a second time at Ramillies, May 23rd, securing the Netherlands and occupying Brussels, Antwerp, Ghent, and Bruges. The French still held the barrier fortresses, chief of which were Mons, Tournay, and Lille, but they were obliged to keep to their own frontier instead of menacing that of Holland. In the same year, Eugène succeeded in winning a victory at Turin, and thus prevented a diversion in favour of Louis in North Italy. The Empire, Holland, and Italy were now safe. It remained to see if the Allies could seat their candidate in Spain. Here, too, there was success in that year. Barcelona was retained, Madrid was entered, yet the obstinate hostility of the Castilians was destined before long to render the position of the Allies in Spain quite untenable. Portugal was on their side, having been secured by the Methuen Treaty in 1703, by which England consented to receive Portuguese wines at a less duty than French ones. This, though a useful alliance, had its disadvantages, in that Englishmen took to drinking port instead of claret. But in spite of the gain of Portugal on one side of Spain and of Catalonia on the other, there still remained the all-important central provinces, whose animosity to the Allies and their candidate Charles could not be overcome. In 1707 the Duke of Berwick beat the Allies in the Battle of Almansa and confined them strictly to the small district round Barcelona, 
which had been true to them all along. There was little hope of a final triumph in Spain. But Marlborough's career of victory went on unchecked. Baffled in their attack on Italy and on Austria, the French in 1708 made a vigorous effort to recover their hold on the Netherlands. But Eugène joined Marlborough, and a third signal victory was placed to the credit of the Allies at Audenarda, July 11, 1708. The capture of Lille, the leading frontier fortress of France, soon followed. Meanwhile, in Scotland, the oft-raised question of a union with England had been settled at last. All through the century since James I's useless attempt, the question had lain open. There were two great difficulties. The Scots absolutely refused all along to have anything to do with an Episcopal church. The wretched failure of the Stuarts to force this upon them had been recognized by William as definite and never to be renewed. The separation of the two countries in church matters had been made absolute. Clearly, then, any political union must be one of state and not of church. Here the difficulty lay in matters commercial. English and Scottish merchants were not on good terms. The Scots had to suffer the burden of the navigation laws as fully as if they had been Dutchmen. A parliamentary union might also be resisted by patriotic Scots, who liked to think of days when a handful of their race had beaten back the Plantagenet attack. But there would not be much trouble. If religion were divided and commerce shared, the union was likely to be easily accomplished. Under the rule of Cromwell, Scotland had been united to England, and then all commercial restrictions had been removed. This free exchange ceased when, at the Restoration, the Scots Parliament regained its independence. They had, therefore, now to choose between independence and free trade. A scheme proposed by one Patterson in the reign of William III, by which Scots were to secure a foremost place in the commercial world by colonizing the Isthmus of Darien and making it a depot for trade of East and West, had failed miserably. The Spaniards, whose rights they invaded, and the climate which they thought much better than it proved to be, combined to kill off the colonists. This, together with the jealousy shown toward the enterprise in England, was enough to make a wider breach more probable than a closer union between the two nations. But the Scots took advantage of the coming succession problem to make Englishmen think less of Scottish commercial rivalry and more of Scottish political union. Their parliament in Edinburgh declared in 1703 that though they would have as sovereign after Queen Anne a descendant of the Electress Sophia, yet their nominee should not be the same as England's unless their religion and trade were secured. This act of security was indeed a skilful trick to bring the English to terms. Commissioners were named to discuss a union of the two realms as soon as the northern kingdom threatened to sever the union of the two crowns, which had been a fact since 1603. The terms finally adopted were those we have suggested. Their religion was secured, their commerce made free. Their legal system remained to bear witness, if necessary, to their ancient independence. Scottish members to the number of 45 were to sit in the House of Commons, while 16 peers were to be elected by the whole body of nobles to represent them in the House of Lords. Thus ended one of the greatest difficulties of the 17th century. 
we have seen how it baffled the wit of james i brought charles and laud to war and their system to overthrow it had given occasion for the display of the cynical indifference of charles the second and the bigoted brutality of his brother now prosperity and peace were to reward the scots for a century of bloodshed and persecution taking advantage of some considerable discontent when the independence of the kingdom was lost the french and the pretender tried in seventeen o eight to create a diversion by a jacobite rising in scotland but the pretender was delayed by the measles and the french fleet was dispersed by the vigorous measures of admiral bing far from being recalled to defend england marlborough was winning his fourth wonderful victory in september seventeen o nine by crushing marshal villard at malplaquet mons fell and the power of france was broken but this series of victories was over in the second period of the reign the government was to be defeated at home though victorious abroad for some time the tory party though weak had been working to recover influence they were led by robert harley an ambitious and unscrupulous statesman who with henry st john better known afterwards as lord bolingbroke represented a tory opposition to marlborough and the war the national feeling was now too important to be neglected and every shift in it was eagerly watched by the tories they were not slow to note that the war in spite of all its brilliant moments was steadily waning in popularity the taxation necessary to support it was heavy and it was loudly asserted that marlborough and the whigs continued the war because it kept them in power there were some grounds for such an assertion more than once louis had proposed to negotiate for a peace he had even offered to give up assisting his grandson in spain to give the dutch a number of barrier fortresses and to banish the pretender but the allies were not content they insisted that the french king should help them to drive his grandson from spain they asked a half-conquered foe to join the allies who had beaten him this was too much and france was stirred to enthusiasm by the imposition of terms which amounted to a national insult this failure to make peace when it was offered on fair conditions exasperated many and caused a tory reaction but another event in sixteen o nine had even greater effect a high church clergyman named dr sacheverell attacked the whigs and dissenters from the pulpit and went the length of publishing his sermons he spoke of the perils of the faithful among false brethren and described these latter in terms so clear that no one could mistake them the government actually impeached this preacher which was very foolish for it gave him popularity among a far larger number of people than those who read the sermons in question the man who had attacked and been attacked by the unpopular whig government became a hero among tories and churchmen and the tories gained from the enthusiasm which sacheverell roused against the whigs meanwhile harley was securing an ally at court whose services were more important still mrs masham his cousin was quietly gaining an influence over the mind of anne which was soon to supplant that of the duchess the queen was tired of this tyrannous woman and welcomed the more gentle sway of the new favourite thus with a tory influence supreme at court and a tory enthusiasm spreading in the street 
the crisis of the war in seventeen ten when louis's proposals were again refused at gertrudenberg led to a clean sweep of the whig ministry the queen had already refused to appoint marlborough captain-general for life the tories came into power and in the following year the great duke and his wife were dismissed from their offices no pains were spared by the tories to secure this triumph they accused marlborough of peculation under circumstances which do them little credit they also secured the services of pamphleteers foremost among them was dean swift the greatest prose writer of the age in the conduct of the allies he attacked the war policy and endeavoured to undermine the support which the whigs possessed in the commercial interests of the nation england he urged was getting terribly into debt in order to preserve dutch towns whose citizens would repay her by underselling english merchants we were fighting for our rivals not for ourselves our interest in the war was slight yet we had become a chivalrous power willing to fight other people's battles all over europe language like this had a great effect the tory ministry marked its succession to power by an attack upon the dissenters they passed the famous bill against occasional conformity it forbade men to receive the sacrament merely to qualify for office and then go back to their dissenting meeting-houses the tories hoped thus to exclude the dissenting element from the town corporations and through them from parliament but the greatest achievement of the new ministers was the ending of the war by the peace of utrecht they had come to power as a peace ministry protesting against the war and the war-makers they now put an end to the struggle the claimant for whom the allies were fighting the archduke charles had become emperor about the time of the accession of the tories to office their task was therefore easy it was absurd to suppose that spain was to be wrested from louis and handed to the emperor charles had been chosen as king when it was improbable that he would ever become emperor it therefore remained to find another candidate and begin the war afresh or to make peace to leave philip v on the throne of spain was certainly to give up an essential point but as there was no one else and as the spaniards were not likely to accept any one else it was a not altogether bad solution louis therefore had the satisfaction of securing spain for his grandson and added a solemn engagement that the crowns of france and spain should never be united for the benefit of any one who might still believe in solemn engagements he acknowledged the hanoverian succession banished the pretender and restored to the dutch their barrier fortresses english merchants obtained some limited trading rights in the spanish indies finally while england kept gibraltar and minorca her colonial gains in the eighteenth century were foreshadowed by the acquisition of newfoundland and other portions of french north america the netherlands and the italian provinces of milan sardinia and naples went to the emperor the duke of savoy obtained sicily while louis retained strasbourg thus by seventeen thirteen the european question was settled and the triumph of party government had begun in england it is noticeable that tory peers were created specially to make a majority in the house of lords in order to prevent opposition to the peace in the third period of the reign the succession question loomed large anne was in bad health the electress sophia was over eighty years of age 
and thus there was a near prospect of two rapid changes in the occupancy of the throne if the latter should outlive the queen fortunately she died a few weeks earlier her son george elector of hanover was about fifty years of age and a good soldier but beyond this little was known about him the party spirit was so completely dominant in england that the tory leaders may well have doubted whether such a king would be accepted by the nation harley now earl of oxford and his colleague bolingbroke were generally supposed to have intended to restore the pretender since they wrote letters to him perhaps they were only trimming as better men had done before but it seems that bolingbroke at least had gone very far in the direction of conspiring for the restoration of james the third by force of arms it is clear they had little to hope from the legal heir to the throne who was sure to place power in the hands of the whigs fortunately for england these two statesmen quarrelled just before anne died oxford was dismissed the question arose who should succeed him as lord treasurer some of the whig lords promptly seized this opportunity of the queen's illness forced their way into the privy council and secured the appointment of the earl of shrewsbury a firm supporter of the hanoverian succession this decided the matter queen anne died on august first seventeen fourteen and the elector george lewis was proclaimed king of great britain france and ireland defender of the faith the days of the stuarts were over personal government by the monarch was now to become obsolete under two foreign kings who knew nothing and cared nothing for english politics for the first time in the history of the realm the sovereign was to become a secondary person in the governance of the land where he reigned but did not rule his place was to be taken by the prime minister the chief of one of the party cabinets which were for the future to be the rule and not the exception the next period of english history should be called the reign of walpole and not labelled with the comparatively insignificant names of the first two georges the ancient struggle between king and parliament had reached its end end of chapter ten recording by pamela nagami in encino california august two thousand seventeen end of king and parliament a d sixteen o three to seventeen fourteen by george henry wakeling